Diversity and the throne of God. Diversity and the throne of God. Every reader of the book of Revelation is faced with many questions of interpretation. How literally should we interpret any given vision that's contained here in the book of Revelation? We must recognize, yes, this is a book of visions. It is a book of prophecy. These are obviously visions, and these visions are filled with imagery, filled with biblical allusions. But we must still make a multitude of interpretive decisions, regardless of your theological commitments. See, that's, that's kind of one of the ma- major questions. One of the massive questions behind reading the book of Revelation is, well, what are your commitments that you arrived with, and then do you let the text speak for itself, or do your presuppositions determine everything for you. Now, my personal rules of thumb, one would be I am personally not a fan of numerology. Numerology. That would be the idea of picking numbers and assigning specific meanings to them without some specific interpretive key. Rather, it, it typically seems rather arbitrary, and it seems typically to be lacking in exegetical grounds. I'll give you some explanations in a moment. When you look up numerology, or the meanings of numbers, you are likely to find yourself on websites dedicated to the occult. You're more likely to find that than you are to find numerology on a biblical studies website. Numerology, astrology, and divination might go together like a set, and therefore it should not be a major building block of your interpretation. Now, as an interpretive rule, I believe that we should take Scripture more literally than less literally. I believe we should take Scripture as literally as reasonable, or as literally as is the intended meaning of the text. What is the author's intention? What is he getting at? Even in the chapter that we read, this chapter 5, he sees visions And in at least two of those places, those visions are explained for us. They're interpreted for us. And so we can read this chapter in a very literal way. Yes, he saw the vision. Here's what happened, and here's the meaning of it. We don't need to push them into absurdity in order to try to prove a spiritual interpretation. There is a spiritual interpretation given. However, regarding... Numerology, I believe that we can do much better than saying, for example, number one means unity, number two means unions, number three means completeness, number four means completeness, number five means grace, number six means sin, number seven means completeness, number ten means human government, number twelve means human government, number thirty means sorrow, number forty means testing, number fifty means celebration, and number seventy means judgment. Those are literally things that I got from a website that said, you know, this is about numerology. Here's what these numbers mean. Most of these numbers mean completeness. Now, that doesn't say that numbers have no meaning. I think that in some cases they do. But the Bible should be what tells us. And if that number is unclear, we should refrain from being overly dogmatic about the number, the meaning of the number. The number seven may, in fact, mean completeness or perfection. But basing our theology and our interpretation of Revelation on such paradigms is not a direction that I want to go. 
even if it is commonly considered reformed, to do so. To say, oh, this whole thing is spiritual and beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding, and these numbers mean a whole bunch of things, and you can't know it without my code. Now, all that being said, that is stuff related to interpreting the book of Revelation. I am also historic premillennialist, so if you want way more information on that than you would ever hope to hear, you can listen to my three-part sermon on that, where I dig deep into um, original sources and the, the patristics and church fathers and why the word historic is part of the word historic premillennialism or classic premillennialism, which is distinct from dispensational premillennialism. There are a variety of views of that as well, at least three or four. But I am a historic premillennialist and a futurist, and I believe the book of Revelation is describing things that are happening, well, did happen in the past, and things that were happening at the present time, and things that will happen in the future. But I do not believe that the book of Revelation is a book that was written in 70 AD and refers to things that are no longer relevant for us. I believe that it is a prophecy of things that are yet to come. Now, regarding our text today, specifically verses 9 and 10, which say, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." I want to consider first a common understanding or a popular view. A popular view. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne. Clearly true. Therefore, we should get a head start on that now. Okay, not necessarily a bad thing. Secondly, we should make our churches look like heaven. And we need to have diversity or else we are in sin. Okay, fair enough, but what if your church is not diverse, though? What if your community is not diverse? What if you pastor a church in another language besides English? Or what if you pastor an English-speaking church? Are you obligated to make half your service in another language or split the service into multiple languages to ensure that people feel included, to ensure that your church has diversity, even if it means making a majority of the congregation unable to understand or participate in a portion of the service? For example, I've seen churches where they'll sing a song in Portuguese or some random language. But you look around and realize, like, there's nobody here who speaks that language. Okay, there might be one person. You know, Jaron speaks Portuguese, but, like, he also speaks English, too. So you have a whole bunch of people standing there, humming and mumbling their way through a song in a language they don't know. For the sake of sort of a diverse agenda. What if you speak a language that is not really all that diverse? What if everyone who speaks that language all look the same? 
let's say you are German and you speak German and you live in Germany and everybody in your church kind of looks the same. Or what if you are speaking Swedish and you live in Sweden and all your people in your church look the same? Is that wrong? Is that bad? What if it's Swahili and everybody who speaks Swahili looks the same? Are you in sin? What if your group doesn't meet some arbitrary diversity quota? What if your leadership team, even more important, what if your leadership team doesn't meet a diversity quota? What if they're all the same? Is that bad? Here's my point. If you elevate ethnic diversity to the level of worship, it will crumble under the weight of the pressure that you put upon it. Diversity was not meant to bear the load of worship. It cannot be the object of exaltation, of worship, of focus. In other words, for those of you who are in like the business world and you're paying attention to what's happening, DEI quotas are not the author's intent in this text. DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. It's this new thing. It's going to be the religion of the future. Every business will have to comply or else they'll be forced out of business. You might lose your job because you're not diverse enough and you need a person of another group or set of characteristics to take your place. This all leads us into the second part the main part, the main thrust of the message. First being diversity is not the glory of heaven. Second, Christ is the glory of heaven. Christ is the object of worship in heaven. Look back at your Bibles in verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders a voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, I didn't read the first eight verses of this chapter, but the point is the same, that in this chapter, there are certain things that are unclear. And if you read five or ten different commentaries, you will find, depending on the, the guy's assumptions, you'll find a range of very confident to not very confident interpretive opinions about certain things, such as, what is the scroll? What is the scroll? Is it 
the will of God? Is it the plan for the ages? Is it the title deed to the universe? I like that view. It sounds, sounds nice, but other people make really strong cases for their view too. And it's not explicitly stated. Who are these elders? That's another question. There's four elders. There's also 24 elders. Who are they? They obviously represent something or they are, they're real. At least John saw them. Now that connects in with your numerology stuff. Like, okay, 24, what does 24 mean? Well, it doesn't say. So I think we should be careful making a huge deal about the significance of four living creatures or the 24 elders. Obviously, a a statement like he had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, well, that's helpful. Now that we know the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, we don't know what that means. Or the seven horns. But here's what we do know. We do know that every single thing, every person, every being in the whole universe will say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We know that there is one object of worship and that is God. That God is the supreme object of worship. The point of heaven is Jesus, not you. The point of heaven is Jesus, not you. Now, right now it is playoff season in baseball. The postseason is, is upon us, and I'm sorry for a lot of baseball illustrations, but baseball is the thing that I know, and it's the thing that I love. So imagine with me that you're at Yankee Stadium, and it's Yogi Berra Day. Raise your hand if you know who Yogi Berra is. All right, so like 30%, 40%. So Yogi Berra is a famous Yankees baseball player. He is a Hall of Famer. And he died in 2015, so he wouldn't be there in person these days. But imagine that it's Yogi Berra Day, and they've got Yogi-isms cycling on the screen. He's famous for his sayings. They're very funny. They don't really make much sense, uh, but they're, they're usually uh, a corruption of another famous saying. So like, he'll take a famous saying and then kind of mess it up a little bit and then say it, and then everybody thinks it's, it's funny, and it lasts on as a yogiism. So they've got yogiism cycling on the screen, and imagine the first 20,000 fans to enter the stadium get a foam finger with Yogi's face on it. They also are cycling Yogi's stats on the screen, Did you know that the most times he ever struck out in a season was 38? Out of 600 at-bats, he only struck out 38 times, and that was his most. Today, players are striking out 200 times per per season. That's that's quite a difference. They They don't make them like they used to. And then imagine with me that it's not today, and it was a few years ago, and so the yogi's there. He's not dead. He's there, and they have him throw out the first pitch. Now also imagine that if you wear a Yogi Berra jersey, which is number eight, they retire jerseys of famous, of really good players, so his number, number eight, is special jersey. And if you have his jersey on, you get a free ticket. You know what the point is on Yogi Berra Day? You'll be shocked to hear that it's not you. You are not the point. 
of Yogi Berra Day. But in fact, it is him. It's all about him, everything. The jerseys that half the stadium are wearing, the foam fingers that 20,000 people get, the statistics and the trivia and the fun little sayings, the guy who throws out the first pitch, the guy who sits in the announcer's booth and talks with the, the, the radio host. It's all about him. It's remembrance of him. It's celebration of him. It's honoring him. It's even imitation of him. The point of heaven is Jesus, not you. When we get to heaven and we are gathered around the throne, our eyes will be fixed on Christ. Now let me ask an obvious question. What happens when we are given our heavenly rewards? Yes, we are given heavenly rewards. Yes, there is great joy and rejoicing and celebration for us, which we benefit from. But what do we do with that? What do we do with the crowns that we receive? We give them back to him. That was a comment that I've made through the years. When I get to heaven, I want to have something to give to him. Call it selfish, if you will, but I don't want to show up empty-handed. And I would hope that that's your desire as well. Jesus is the focal point of heaven. Jesus is the focal point of heaven. If we want to make our churches like heaven, we must make Jesus the focal point of the church. This seems so obvious, and it seems so simple. But it seems lost in many places. It seems absent in many churches. They say, oh, we want to have ethnic diversity in the church. So what they do is they elevate that. They elevate ethnicity. They draw great attention to that. And what ends up happening is They become very focused on that. They become very focused on skin color. They become very focused on culture or race or whatever you want to call it. But other things get sidelined, like God, the worship of God, the focus on God, the glory of God. Yet Jesus tells us in John 12, 32, That if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, he said that specifically with reference to his crucifixion, yet the point is the same. That if we elevate Christ and we preach Christ, the Holy Spirit will use the word of God to draw his elect to himself. And it just so happens that in New York, we happen to live in a very diverse area, very diverse town that we've got here. And so then it just so happens that a church that preaches Christ might be a little bit more diverse than one that preaches diversity. But a church that's in a town that is, my grandfather's from Montana, 
in Malta, Montana, it's like a bunch of Swedish immigrants. Malta Community Church or the Lutheran Brethren Church in Malta where my grandfather was saved, it's all a bunch of white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. It is not sinful and wrong that that is the case. But the way they can practice and prepare for heaven is by preaching and glorying in Jesus and focusing on him and exalting him. And that is the same for us today. And it is the same for a pastor who might pastor a Russian church where they preach and speak Russian. Or a Spanish-speaking church. You don't have to feel bad that your church is monoethnic. It doesn't have to be multi-ethnic. It doesn't have to be multicultural. It's not a bad thing to be able to speak to people in their language. And even music, we were discussing this in membership class this morning, music is, is largely cultural. And here in New York, there's kind of a certain you know, norm of what music is, and it tends to be you know, more Western-type, somewhat classical, somewhat contemporary. Our main thing is that we want to do congregational singing. We want the people to be able to sing. But there are certain songs that really resonate with people and certain songs that just don't resonate with people. And if you have two songs of equal content, but one resonates with certain people and the other doesn't resonate with certain people, it is fine to use the one that people love. It's one of our members who's away at college is from Jamaica and she just loves certain types of rhythmic progressions and chords and styles and things that just I don't particularly care for or appreciate. But if this church was in Jamaica, had many people from Jamaica, then it would be very important that the church have connections to that culture. But the fact is, we in New York are very much a melting pot, very much a, a blended group of all kinds of different people and in my observation is a church, no matter how contextualized it tries to be, in New York, they're all singing the same 50 songs. You can go up to Harlem, you'll hear the same 50 songs as what you heard in Midtown or what you hear in Brooklyn or any other place. But in very ethnic communities where there's one specific uh, people group, it is totally fine to make that worship intelligible to them. Actually, I think you need to do that. Nevertheless, the point of it all is Christ and him crucified. Now, one more controversial point, I think is probably my most controversial thing, which is that hell is just as diverse as heaven. Hell is just as diverse as heaven. It is. Everybody goes to either heaven or hell. But what's the difference between the two? The difference between hell and the difference between heaven and the people that go to the different places, the ones in hell don't love Jesus. They don't worship Jesus. They don't love God. They don't worship God. They don't believe in him. They haven't repented. They don't believe in the gospel. The people in heaven, they're the ones who we read about here in Revelation 5. They're worshiping God and they love to do so. 
It fills their heart with joy and delight to, to even hear these words read, such as, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Those, that, that's the clearest distinction between the people in hell and the people in heaven. The people in heaven love that message, that the lamb was slain. In our church, the concern is not about a diversity quota. The concern is about the worship of God. And I desire, strongly desire, that every person here end up in heaven one day. Then what matters is not your diversity. What matters is your faith in Christ, which is effectively synonymous with the worship of Christ. In heaven, you have a group of diverse lovers of God and worshipers of God. And in hell, you have a group of diverse haters of God. So if we want to practice and prepare for heaven, we should focus on making the church God-centered, not man-centered, worshiping God, not worshiping man, being primarily concerned with what God wants in the church, not what people want in the church, and especially not putting unbelieving New Yorkers in the driver's seat, that their opinion is what sets the, the, the agenda, in 2017, when I was first beginning to plant the previous church and talking with church planning coaches and experts and people who fund these things here in New York, they said, Andy, you have to do everything in your church geared towards the unbeliever. And I thought, wait, shouldn't it be for God? Like, yeah, we're not going to ignore the unbeliever. We're not going to say, hey, we don't even care about making this intelligible to them. But ultimately, God is in charge. God is the one who sets the agenda. God is the one who tells us what to do. He's the one we're worshiping. We're not worshiping the person in the driver's seat. And as the famous uh, you know, one-liner goes, when a person comes up to the preacher and says, hey, I didn't like the worship today. And the pastor says, well, we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> That's our concern is, does, does God approve of what we're doing. And the way we can find that out is by reading his word. Typically, when someone tells me they didn't like the music, I would say, well, if you'd sing better, it'd be a little better. <laughs> now, bringing this together here, we have the object of heaven's worship, the object of heaven's worship. The object of heaven's worship is the Lamb. Who is the lamb? The lamb is Jesus. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back. So I had writing on the front and back of that scroll in the Father's hand, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang that new song. This is the lamb who was slain, but he's standing. So he died and he rose again. This lamb is Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of this world. If you're here today and you're kind of, you think it's sort of strange, the idea of worshiping a a lamb, the lamb of God, what that even means. Well, that's an Old Testament allusion. It's a reference to what was happening in Old Testament Israel. See, the Israelite people, just like us, were very sinful. They did a lot of bad things. And God gave them a set of rules, which we'd call the law. And in that law, there were certain stipulations. If you do this bad thing, then there is this that you have to do to make it right. That was a system of sacrifices. So if they um, stole from someone, they would have to repay it. Um, If they're ox killed another person's ox, they would have to do certain things to make that up, to make that right. And then for certain sins, they would have to sacrifice a a lamb. Jesus is coming onto the scene in the New Testament and he says, I'm the lamb of God. See, the, the nation of Israel wasn't that big, but they still had, you know, a couple million people which meant millions and millions of lambs being slain every year. And the blood that would just flow out of the temple, like a slaughterhouse. Jesus saying, hey, I'm the one who's going to make atonement for your sins. It'll be by my death, by the shedding of my blood, that you will be atoned for, that you will be reconciled to God. I'll be the one that dies in the place of the guilty. See, all those lambs that were killed were a picture of Jesus, the final sacrifice, who would bring an end to that sacrificial system. So Jesus comes onto the scene and he lives this sinless life. See, the lambs that were killed in the Old Testament had to be spotless. They couldn't have blemishes. They couldn't have broken bones. They couldn't be discolored or have like, you know, messed up nose or anything like that. They had to be a... a, pure, spotless, unblemished lamb. Jesus was without sin. And like the lambs, he had never even a broken bone. Jesus, the spotless lamb, went to the cross and he was nailed there. He was pinned to that tree. He bled and died for your sins and for mine. See, he not only died under the wrath of God, but he also took away our sins and gave us his righteousness. In the Old Testament, there was also a scapegoat. They would have two, one would be killed, the other one would be released. And the one that was released would would picture the taking away of the sins. And that's what Jesus does for us in his death. 
He takes our sins away. He separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Jesus literally cancels the record of the ordinances that stood against us, including their legal demands, which are contrary to us. The law which hung above above our heads and said, death, guilty, you're unworthy to enter. Jesus bore all of that for us, for you, if you will believe. This is what was happening when Jesus, as the Lamb of God, died on the cross and took away the sins of this world. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. That is the reason why you have this lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus bears the marks of his death forever. He has scars in his hands, his feet and his side. The evidence of his crucifixion abides for eternity. So this image of a slaughtered lamb who is standing and living today is something that we too will see. The object of heaven's worship is the lamb. It focuses on him. Secondly, the grounds of heaven's worship The reason why, the motivation for the worship is because he was slain. Let me ask you this. What is the essential factor without which there is no heavenly worship? What has to happen in order for there to be worship in heaven? There has to be a slaughtered lamb. See, if Jesus doesn't die, there's no hope for us. If Jesus doesn't die, nobody's getting in. So when the people are gathered around the throne and they're worshiping God, they're worshiping Christ, they're worshiping the Lamb, and what they're saying is, hey, you paid for us. You made access for us. You were were slain. And you ransomed us. Because if you didn't do that, we wouldn't be here. That is the grounds of heaven's worship. This essential factor without which there would be no heavenly worship is the slain lamb. Thirdly, think with me about the unity of heaven's worship. We have the object of heaven's worship, which is the lamb, the grounds of heaven's worship, which is the slaughtered lamb, the the fact that he was slain, and then thirdly, the unity of heaven's worship. What's happening in heaven? They're all singing the same song. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. What does that mean? It means a whole, whole bunch. It means a number that's so high you can't count it. It's millions and millions of angels, living creatures and elders. They're all saying the same thing. And what they're saying is, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
The unity of their worship is derived in the object of their worship and the grounds of their worship, which is Christ. They're all singing the same thing, the same message. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no other message being sung. I think there, I think there will be lots of songs sung in heaven, but I think that we sing them in unity. I believe that the songs of the redeemed, I think that the Christian songs, the songs I believe we sing on earth, I think some of them just might, might even make it to heaven. Especially the more biblical our songs are, the more scriptural our songs are. But they have unity in their worship, though it is a number that is far greater than what could be counted. And then fourth, we see the manner of heaven's worship, the manner of heaven's worship, the way in which they're worshiping in heaven. Look at verses 12, verse 14. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then look at verse 14. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. What you see here. The way in which they're worshiping is it is a passionate and involved worship. It is not the, the one with his arms folded across his chest saying, I dare you to entertain me in this worship service. Instead, they're saying, I am here to give praise to God. And I'm not afraid if the person standing next to me hears it. The manner of heaven's worship is a passionate and involved full body experience. Now, that all then leads us to the church's worship. If, as we mentioned at the very beginning, the church should be a preparation for heaven, it should look something like heaven, What should the church's worship be like? Well, first, our object of worship, the object of the church's worship, should be the Lamb. Jesus should be the one that we worship. He should be the one that we focus on. Secondly, the grounds of the church's worship, it should be the Lamb's death. That's the reason why we're here. The reason why we're here is not because we are good people who've got it together. The reason we're here is because we, as sinful people, recognize that Jesus is the Savior of sinners and he died for sinners, and that includes you and me. And so because of that, we're eligible to have our sins forgiven and there is place for us, as the song says, there's room at the cross for you. So when we gather together, We're gathering not because we are better than anyone else, but because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain for us, for you and for me. And then thirdly, the unity of the church's worship, because we're all worshiping the same Savior. Did you know that not every church in New York City, even though it has the word church on the sign, is worshiping the same Jesus? They have fundamentally different views of who God is. 
This is why here we make it explicitly clear what we believe. This is why the doctrinal statement's on the website. This is why we have a doctrinal statement in the first place. Because we believe the Bible, and the Bible tells us that in the last days there will be many false teachers that have gone out into the world. There will be many false Christs that are lifted up, many false versions of Jesus that are lifted up. And then people will flock after them. They will go after them and pursue them because they have itching ears. They want to hear what they want to hear. And so they will hire false teachers that they would call pastors to tell them what they want to hear. And if they don't tell them what they want to hear, then they fire them and bring in somebody else who will affirm everything they want to affirm and disavow everything they want to be disavowed. And that is rampant in New York City. But our unity is found, the unity of our worship is found in us all worshiping the same Savior. When we say Jesus, we mean the same person. When I say Jesus, when Jaron says Jesus, when Luke says Jesus, we're talking about the same object of our worship. Obviously, there are many second and third tier issues which, which people differ on. But those things are not the grounds in which we worship God. A view of the millennium, a view on definition of spiritual gifts, the ultimate thing which brings us together is Christ. And then fourthly, the manner of heaven's worship. The way of the church's worship should in some way image that of the worship in heaven. So I would ask you this question, just to consider for yourself. Has your voice ever gotten tired because you were singing in church so exuberantly? Have you ever sat down after the final song and thought, man, I'm glad to sit down because I'm tired. That was a workout, singing those songs. What is that tingle in the back of my voice I feel? If you've never felt that, I would encourage you to, when, when you get the church email this week, Destiny so carefully puts together every week and includes a YouTube link so that you can listen to the songs and know how they go. So you can know the songs before you even get here. So that when we sing, you already know them. And you can sing them passionately in a way that your, next, your, your neighbor sitting next to you can actually hear you. And that the people who are watching on Facebook Live, they can hear it and be like, wow, that, their church sings really well. Or at least they're loud. Because <laughs> that's the thing. You, you notice that here in, in this chapter. It says they sang with a loud voice. They said with a loud voice. They sang. They cried out. I don't think that the Bible specifies which musical instruments we're supposed to use, but I do think that it tells us how we're supposed to sing, and I think we should sing like we believe it. There's a certain type of culture among uh, certain segments of the, the concept of like manhood where they say, like, well, men don't sing. So men just kind of stand there in church, just kind of humming and their wife and children sing, but the men just kind of stand there humming. 
That is not biblical. The Bible commands us to sing. And it tells us to sing with joy in our hearts to the Lord, to make a joyful noise, do the best you can. But if you practice during the week, you can do better. As they said in music class, if Pavarotti could sing, anybody can sing. He's one of the world's greatest singers, but his starting point was far worse than yours. He went from being tone deaf or something. He was terrible, really, really bad. He had everything going against him. So let's have our worship, the worship in the church, mirror and reflect the worship in heaven to whatever degree is in our ability. We're really, frankly, we're not concerned with your skin color. We're not concerned with how diverse anything is, whether it's the leadership team or the small group leadership or the scripture reading people or the musicians. Like None of that is relevant. We don't care about any of that. You can't change your skin color and neither can I. So that's not a point of focus. But the things that you can change, your belief in and knowledge of and worship of the Lamb, your love for Him, your knowledge of Him, your attitude as you come into worship, you can control what you schedule yourself to do on the weekends and whether or not you schedule yourself to be absolutely exhausted on Sunday morning or you schedule yourself to be well-rested on Sunday morning. You control all that stuff. So too, you can control the worship that you bring to God. This is, I believe, what makes us prepared to gather around the throne as we practice week after week after week in preparation for that great day when we stand before Christ with the full number of all the elect of God, all the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation, all united to bring honor and glory to the Lamb. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to gather. Thank you for allowing us to read your word, and to hear from you. I pray that you would be honored in all of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.